are at the end, ladies and gentlemen, of what has been, I don't know, for me, like it's just been a ton of fun. I hope it's been fun for you. Uh, I've loved this series. You know why I think? Because I, I love... I love sitting around with my friends that are outside of the church and being able to relate God to their lives. And uh, that's what a lot of this has been for me, is like hearing these songs that uh, everybody knows. Um, I, have a, I have a friend that, you know, I, I don't think knows God at all, and he's been reposting some of these. Um, so it's been re uh, really kind of fun for me. Today's the last one. Um, I went to Rutgers University, uh, senior year, we, I lived off campus in uh, a house, it was uh, nine Delafield, as we used to uh, refer to it when we'd have a party, we'd turn the nine upside down and say it was just six to the authorities. Um, and we'd have uh, our parties, and every party at, at the end of the night ended with the same song. Um, a bunch of us sitting around in the basement singing Don McLean's American Pie. Um, it was, this is an older song, older than I even realized, 1971. Um, and it was, it was, it did hit number one, but only for four weeks. So it wasn't a huge, like, record-breaking song. But there's something about this song, like all these songs we've tried to pick, there's something about it that, I mean, why are we still singing? Why does, that, why does every, you know, bar you go into, some guy, if it's open mic night, give it enough time, somebody will start singing American Pie. What's interesting is the, the Recording Institute of America, has listed this song as the number five song of the century. So it had some huge impact. Don McLean, at the age of 13, learned about the death of the American rock star Buddy Holly while he was folding newspapers for his paper route in his garage. That's where the line, February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. And while the lyrics were based on the loss of Buddy Holly, many of you know this, right? The quote, day the music died, um, that was the day that Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, great movie, by the way, La Bamba, if you've never seen it, uh, and the Big Bopper, uh, many of you know they were in a chartered aircraft that, that crashed and they died. And the song speaks to that, but it, the song speaks to a lot more than that. It's interesting, on the, on the 50th anniversary of the crash, McLean said, the writing the first verse of the song exercised his long-running grief over Holly's death, but also that he considers the song to, quote, be a big song that summed up the world known as America. And it seems somewhat poignant today to me on September 11th that this kind of song of reflection about an America gone by, a, a day gone by, um, that maybe September 11th kind of conjures up in us, it was kind of a, it was a good song to maybe save for today. So, it's the last summer song. So, I'm going to ask you if you would join us and get up out of your seats and pretend you're in the basement at 9 Delafield, 6 to the authorities, and uh, the party's wrapping up, and uh, somebody started to say, a long, long time ago, let's sing it together. Long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me feel And I know if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while February made me shiver Every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his will 
the day the music died so bye bye Miss American Pie drove my Chevy to the levee but the levee was dry Holy Ghost 
They caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. And they were singing ask you guys, if you've uh, enjoyed any of what these guys have done over the last eight weeks, would you really give them, I mean, they worked so hard. So, uh, so incredibly proud of them and how much fun this has been and how much we're learning in it. The good news is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have not caught the last train for the coast. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's interesting, if you read the teaser I sent you this week, um, when asked what American Pie meant, Don McLean jokingly replied, it means I don't ever have to work again. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty good answer. Uh, he said, um, later on, he would say, you're going to find many interpretations of my lyrics, but none of them are by me. He said, I'm sorry to leave you all on your own like this, but a long time ago, I realized that songwriters should make their statements and move on, maintaining a dignified silence. He also commented on the popularity of his song. He said, I didn't write songs that were just catchy, but with a point of view, or, or songs about the environment. And that sounds um, very cool, and like he's not a sellout or anything, until in February 2015, when he was getting older, and he said, you know, my, my family aren't really business people. Uh, he said, I'm going to sell the original manuscript of the song. Um, and he said, in order to kind of tease up the interest in it, he said, I'll also reveal the meaning of the lyrics um, when I sell them. And they were sold just in the last year, April 2015. And uh, they were, you know what they were sold for? $1.2 million. Just the notebook of his, his handwriting on this. And in the sale catalog, uh, McLean revealed the meaning in the song's lyrics, which I didn't think were all that hard to figure out. but. Um, basic, quote, basically in American Pie, things are heading in the wrong direction. It, life itself, is becoming less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it is more, it, but it is more, or it, try it again. I don't know if you consider that wrong or right, but it is a morality song in a sense. Now, I'm not sure when things like this happen to us. But it happens to all of us at one point or another. I remember when it happened to my mom. I think it was related to music. It often is related to music. Um, it's happened to me now, my kids will tell you. I remember when it happened to my mom. I wasn't even a huge music kid in school, yet you couldn't have been a child of the late 70s or early 80s uh, without having like ACDC, Back in Black. Anybody remember that? Like, you know, Back in Black, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, or maybe, maybe you were a member of the KISS Army. Is anybody out there a member of the KISS Army? Um, <laughs> that was a sheepish hand, but we have a, ladies and gentlemen, a card-carrying member of the KISS Army is up front. Uh, you know, the whole Gene Simmons thing, and you know, the notebooks, and the lunch, I remember the aluminum KISS lunchbox, you know, with the thermos inside. 
Um, and so, you know, my little stereo downstairs would be filled with these songs. And then other, other deeply meaningful songs, I remember playing these, they would, the, the lyrics like would bring me to, to tears uh, from Hey Mickey. You remember Hey Mickey? You're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey Mickey. And I would just be playing that downstairs. And I remember my mom just one day came down disgusted by this and said, this is not music. What you kids have today, this is not music. And she would regale me with stories of Elvis or, or the Beatles and, and, and a little even Sinatra would get worked into that, right? Yet, yet, this happens all the time because I went to my grandmother's house, my mother's mother's house, and one day we were looking through pictures and my grandmother took out a picture of her mother and said, oh, here's a picture of your great-grandmother. And, you know, it's black and white, it's very time period looking, kind of a, a stern looking old German woman. And she had a button on her house coat that was about this big and it said, I hate Elvis. <laughs> I looked at my mom, I said, see? Because it, something happens to all of us along the way. I have given my kids speeches. Who are the great songwriters of your day? Do you think you're going to be listening to, you know, whoever? I don't even know their names anymore. Um, but it's not just music. This concept of like the time gone by being better or different. If you're on social media, right, you see, and because I'm friends with a bunch of different age group people, you know, I've got my mom's, I'm friends with my mom, and my mom's got her social 70-something friends, and, and they'll have memes that talk about, well, their generation was so much, you remember when, you know, and it would be all this listing of why growing up in the 50s was so much better than growing up today. And then people from my generation, they're out there posting their memes about, have you seen these? About, oh, you know, why it was so much better to grow up in the, in the 70s and the 80s. And there'll be pictures, uh, one of the things will be like the Atari and how innocent the Atari was at the time. And then uh, as if that was much better than this generation who, you know, how many times do you hear everybody go, oh, this generation is so lost today because all they do is stare at their iPads and their phones, right? <laughs> as he looks at his daughter. <laughs> Well, see, this is what we do. Um, yesterday was better than today. Oh, how I long for yesterday. And so here's the deal. If you get this, this is a really interesting point today. I, I put some, uh, some thought into this, some work into it. It's not really quite fascinating. If you'll, if you'll get this, there's a biblical command coming. You'll see in a second. Imagine that a biblical command that has something to do with American Pie. If you see, if you see this and you understand it, it it will change a lot of things for you. Here's the deal. You and I, because of the way we were created, actually I think it's because of our brokenness, I don't think it's God's original creation, we have, a, we have a, something going on in our brokenness that allows us to whitewash our yesterdays and cloud our tomorrows. Yesterday, all my problems seem so, but now it seems as though they're here. What do you believe in? Somebody made a lot of money on that. There's something in our brokenness that goes, yeah, it was so good back then. It's just not any good anymore. There's many examples of this. If you look at each generation that's gone by, one that I, I, just, I was so fascinated by this. Like, it's been going on forever. So I got caught up. Um, one of the things that struck me was the, um, the Kennedy era. And, and anybody know what the Kennedy era is often referred to romantically? Camelot. Camelot, right? 
In an interview shortly after he died, Jackie Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy died, Jackie Kennedy pressed upon a reporter that had come uh, to talk about the goings-on of what had happened. She pressed upon the reporter this Camelot image that would prove so influential in the shaping of the public memory of JFK and his administration. President Kennedy, she said to the journalist, was especially fond of the music from the popular Broadway show Camelot. And according to Mrs. Kennedy, this one's a little hard to believe, according to Mrs. Kennedy, the couple enjoyed listening to a recording of the title song before going to bed at night. JFK was especially fond of the concluding couplet. Could you put that one up there, um, Darren? Don't ever, the one that starts don't ever, don't let it, don't ever let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment, that was Camelot. And so she related this to the interviewer, Theodore White from, um, from Life magazine. She said, President Kennedy was so attracted to the Camelot legend because he was an idealist and he saw history as something that was going to be made by heroes like King Arthur. She actually went on to say this uh, in that same interview. She said, there will be great presidents again but there'll never be another Camelot. You ever felt like that about something in your life? Like, man, that was great, but there'll never be anything like that again. Here, here's what's fascinating. Following the interview, um, White retreated to a guest room in the Kennedy Mansion um, in Kenne uh, not Kennebunkport, uh, Cape, Cape Cod, Cape? Hyannisport, Hyannisport. He went back into to a, a separate room and he was working on a draft of the essay and he needed to get it to his editors. It was late on a Saturday night and they were holding the presses open um, at a big expense to receive his copy over the telephone. And so when White later phoned his editors to dictate the text with Mrs. Kennedy standing nearby, he was surprised by their reactions because they initially rejected the Camelot references. Come on, this, that's ridiculous. It's too sentimental. It's inappropriate to the occasion. But Mrs. Kennedy, interpreting the gist of the exchange that was going on on the phone, signaled to the reporter that Camelot must be kept in the text. The editors quickly relented, but the reporter later wrote he regretted the role he played in transmitting the Camelot myth to the public. Now, a historical look back to the 60s, and you'll see it wasn't exactly Camelot. Great civil unrest, Cuban Missile Crisis, a president with such terrible back problems that he wound up addicted to drugs, and a man who, you know, despite, despite how things looked in the Camelot days, was far, far from a, a, a moral icon. But just a short time later, there once was a shining place known as Camelot. Now, you need to know, this is not a Democratic or Republican issue. We have done the same thing uh, forever. I'm old enough, I've lived through this enough now that I, you, know, you see that we, we do it all the time. It doesn't matter who it's with. I was, I was alive uh, during the Reagan era, uh, and I, you know, I was alive, I remember the Jimmy Carter era, right? And Jimmy Carter, oh, he was, he was terrible. We had to get rid of him, right? And we're gonna bring Ronald Reagan in. And now we look back on Reagan, and he's held up as one of the top like five presidents in history. Does anybody remember what people thought about Reagan in 1988? Reagan's popularity ratings were in the 30% range. They were below Jimmy Carter's. At the time, when he left office, a third of the American population felt he should have been removed from office. But in 2016, oh, if we could just go back to the Reagan years. It was so good. Everything was good then. It's all bad now. 
You see, it's not just music, it's not just politics, it's not just pop culture. There's something in us that makes us believe in yesterdays and not tomorrows. The Beatles got it right, and they made a fortune when they nailed it. Yesterday, my problems seemed so far away, but now it seems as though they're here to stay. And listen to what they said. I believe in yesterday. Is there a sadder line ever written than that? I believe in yesterday. So why the heck would I get out of bed today? There's something about us that wants to believe in yesterday, but wants to fear and loathe today and tomorrow. And guys, those of you that would say, I want to follow after Jesus Christ, this is a major faith problem. Jesus is a forgiver of our past, and he's a redeemer of our futures. As followers of Jesus, we should be the most hopeful people on earth. But do you know who cry out for yesterdays more than anybody? Us. There's a book, if you're not familiar with it, there's a book in the Old Testament um, called Ecclesiastes. It's written by a man named Solomon, whom the Bible holds as perhaps the richest and the wisest man to ever live. And Solomon in this book was writing to warn the young people of his kingdom that were walking through life by human wisdom, not godly wisdom, that they were prone to certain errors in judgment that were going to mess their lives up. Now, here's what I want you to see. What you and I experience is not a 20th century problem. Watch this now. The great Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, around the year 900 B.C. Let me repeat that one. 900 B.C., long before Elvis. Solomon identified something among his people that he wanted to warn them about, and do you know what it was? Titus. Uh, um, where is it? Put the Ephesians, or not the Ephesians, the, the Ecclesiastes verse up. Yeah, I don't know why I put that. It's not Titus, it's Ecclesiastes. That's my, my transgression here. But here's what Solomon said. It's not Titus, it's Ecclesiastes. Do not say, why were the old bed days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. In fact, the New Living Translation uh, says it this way. Don't, I love this. Don't long for the good old days. That's not wise. Stop walking around going, oh, I long for the old days. Today blows. Think about this. What does this mean for your Facebook page? You need to stop lecturing the kids. It turns out it's a biblical command for perhaps the wisest man who ever lived to stop thinking that yesterday was better than today. Solomon says it's not wise. You're being, in fact, if you're not being wise, you're being foolish. In fact, I'm going to go as your pastor even further. I'm going to say not only is it unwise, not only is it foolish, I'm going to tell you that it can be downright dangerous to your health and to your soul and to your witness for the one that so many of us want to follow. This is a big issue. American pie resonates with us so much because we long to go, it was so much better back then, can't we just go back that way? And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says, don't, 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 don't do that. Now here's why. Here's why you need to, to stop longing for the good old days. Reason number one. I'm going to give you three reasons. You, you need to stop this. I need to stop it. Joan will tell you, nobody can reminisce about the old days like me. Okay? I mean, I sit out on my back porch uh, uh, once a week lamenting that my children have left me. Um, you know, I got put on a little Kenny Chesney and mope. Um, there's a lot of Kenny Chesney, good Kenny Chesney parenting moping songs, if you're unfamiliar. But I got to stop. I need you to help me stop. 
Here's why. Now, in general, okay, I'm speaking in generalities. I know for some of you, yesterday really was better than today. I get that. But in general now, here's the truth. In general, yesterday was not better than today. It turns out that in almost all cases, Camelot really did not exist the way you remember it. In fact, by nearly all measures, you and I live in the greatest time in the history of the world. There has never been a time ever, save perhaps the Garden of Eden, where there has been less war, more health, longer lifespans, greater riches, better medicines, less poverty, greater peace, more freedom, and limitless opportunities than right now. That's the truth. The first reason you have to stop longing so much for yesterday and fearing lamenting today is that yesterday was not much better than today. And when you live that way, when you live that way, here's what it does. It makes you ungrateful for what you've been given and what God has done. It makes you ungrateful for what you have been given and for what God has done. I would venture to say that every generation that has come before this one would long to live in the world you have been given a chance to live in. You want to go to Paris? You realize you could have dinner in Paris, except for the time change, you could have dinner in Paris tonight? My son is, is my, okay, how about this? My son's in a training class in London for a month. That's enough to blow your own mind. But I could go out in the foyer and FaceTime him. When's the last time you worried about polio? Been any incurable diseases like the Black Plague wiping out a third of the world's population lately? Hot today? Walk into an air-conditioned building. The first reason you and I have to stop longing for the days gone by is it will make you ungrateful for all that you've been given. And what the Bible teaches is that everything that you've been given that's good and perfect, it came from God. And so, I have to share this with you. It is some tough teaching I'm going to give you here today. Hopefully you all come back next week because it's going to be a really good week next week. A couple things. When we just keep going, oh, it's so much better yesterday, there is a level of shaking our fist in God's face when we say that. When we keep saying yesterday was better than today. Yesterday was better than today. And God's looking at you and going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you know what I've done for you and your people? <laughs> Let alone what I've given, I've given my son for you. So number one, you can't keep looking back and going, yesterday, oh, we just, we just got to move this thing backwards. Everything was better back then. It's not true. And it'll make you, it'll make you an ungrateful person. Here's the second reason you and I need to stop living our lives with our eyes constantly in the rearview mirror and not looking ahead. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread lightly here, okay? I'm going to tread lightly here. Everybody understands I'm going to tread lightly, right? Because especially in this election season, when we keep our eyes focused on what's behind us and not what's, what's in front of us together, it causes us to become toxic, angry, frustrated, ticked-off people against anybody we might perceive might want to change the things that we like. Go back to Don McLean's uh, song. Basically, he said in American Pie, things are heading in the wrong direction. It's life. Life's becoming less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it's a morality song in a sense. And he leads us to believe, and we all do believe this at one level or another, that things were better, not just for our country in days gone by, or not just for us, but for our country in days gone by. It was once a, America was once a shining city on a hill. 
but the lights have been shut down. And now, look, I get that, and I think there's some truth to that. I think there's some truth there. But what about you and I, at least for those of you in the room uh, who would say that I want to follow Jesus in a country? What do, what's our response for those of us that want to follow Jesus in a country, in a culture, which seems less and less bent on being Christian? How do we engage the culture? How do we, when, when the death of the America we want it seems to be going on, what are our responsibilities what are we supposed to do as Christian American pie seekers? Two things. First, here's the first thing you need to remember when you start to say that this country's best days are behind it. And this isn't a political speech or anything because I'm going to show you why this is a God thing. But here's the first thing you, remember, you need to remember. It was never Camelot, people. You are absolutely right if you think that our culture has changed relative to the embrace of Judeo-Christian values. But it has not only changed in one direction. Because it's a country, because it always has been a country made up of and led by broken people, sinful people, there have always been issues with America's morality. Sure, there are changes going on in our country that some of us, in fact, the polling data actually indicates that both Republicans and Democrats, those on the left and those on the right, those that are religious and those that are secular, all of us seem to share the view that our country morally has been in decline. But also remember this, it was never Camelot. Our past is full of some moral transgressions, too. I mean, in terms of what we've done to, to the Native American population, to the, to the African American population, theft of land, slavery, segregation, injustice, those are not Christian moral values. I mean, just because we have the Ten Commandments back in front of the courthouse doesn't mean that we've always been these iconic Christians. I tell you that in our country, at least in terms of the way we provide justice and opportunity for all, that's actually better than today than it was 100 years ago. You with me on that? There are huge Christian principles which we're actually better at today than we were 100 years ago. Do we have a still a ways to go? Yes. Yes. Morally, there are places where we are worse as a people and as a culture, but please don't minimize the faults of the past. There are major places where we are morally better people, too, and we need to celebrate that, and we need to push that forward. But here's the second thing relative to what our posture in this election should be, and, and what I will say is that, you know, I've seen a lot of elections. These things are silly at this point, the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do when this is over. Have you ever just watched the news now and go, what are they going to do when this is over? Like, there's nothing. They don't talk about anything. And the vitriol just gets worse and worse. But here's what the Bible commands of those of us who want to follow Jesus. I'm telling you, if you, if you would spend time in the scriptures, what you'll see is Jesus is, the way of the scripture is almost never the way that feels like it should be the right way. It's almost always different. Here's what the scripture, here's what Paul says, the scripture, in the scripture, what, what we should do. Here's the role of the church in a society like ours. Titus, this is now Titus, Darren, 3, uh, 1 to 2. Remind them, Paul says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. How's that Facebook post you put up looking? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul instructing his church, a church which was subject to the brutal, inequitable, ungodly, pagan rule of Rome. It was Paul instructing them how to live in that society. And essentially what he's saying is, live like Jesus did in that society. 
He says, follow Jesus' example. Jesus did not expend time and energy admonishing believers on how to reform pagan cultures, idolatrous, immoral, and corrupt practices. Paul says, you don't need to take to the streets. Paul told them, you don't have to exercise civil disobedience to protest the Roman Empire's unjust rule. Instead, Paul says, for Christians, proclaim the gospel and live lives that would give clear evidence of the transforming power of God. Believe it or not, I need you to listen up here. Believe it or not, believe it or not, Christians, you and I have an obligation to a pagan society. Christians have an obligation to a pagan society. When you live as God wants you to in an unbelieving culture, the Spirit uses your life to draw the sinner by the softening of his attitude towards God. This is the way we can redeem this culture. Here's what what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12. He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Can I I ask you this election season? Don't get me wrong. You should vote. You should be informed. You should use your influence. But I would encourage you to do it in this fashion. First, here's here's what Paul said to Titus. Be subject to the rulers and the authorities. Be obedient. We have certain requirements about our attitude and our conduct in relation to secular leaders. We're not exempt from following civil laws and directives, unless, of course, they just radically contradict the law of God. But this ultimately, guys, is a heart issue. We are to love and to pray for those that are our leaders, even when we disagree with them. I can't tell you how this wounds our cause when we do this the wrong way. The second thing Paul says is, you need to tell them to be ready for every good deed. See, in these days of vitriol, God calls us to, to good deeds, to, to, to doing things that where people will look and go, wow, I wonder why they're doing that. Not to anger or malice or rage. God wants us to be recognized for being consistent and aggressively good. Good deeds done out of the love for Jesus and the love for other people. The church over the last hundred years has not done this well. We wag our fingers at people really well. We blow things up okay, but we we have been wonderful accusers and moral judges, but we have not in the last hundred years or so been very good doers of good. How about this one? Paul says, when the the world, when you're losing your culture, when the culture doesn't believe in your God, when the culture is, is, is putting into practice all kinds of things which go against your moral code, Paul says this, to malign no one. One, wrote, one, one writer said, it's sad that many believers today speak scornfully of politicians and other public f- figures. When they do that, this, this is really good, okay? When they do that, and man, we do this. When they do that, they actually manifest a basic disregard of their responsibility towards authority, and they hinder God's redemptive plan. When you are blasting the political leaders that you sense are not of your camp, of your tribe, of your belief system, you could be hindering God's redemptive plan. I mean, some of us, we need to check what we say, watch what we post. 
He goes on, he says, look, be, con- be uncontentious, be gentle. He reminds us that we have to be friendly and peaceful towards people who don't follow God, not, bel- not belligerent, not quarrelsome. Now, I know, I have to tell you, I get so ticked off at some of this moral stuff. Like, I'm trying to raise four kids and keep them innocent, too. And it can be so frustrating. It can get you so upset. But, but if God's love for the world was so broad and intense that his son died for a multitude of sinners... How can we who've received the same grace be harsh and unloving towards those who haven't understood that yet? Until God works in somebody's life, he or she is going to behave like an unbeliever. Why do we keep making them think that they're going to behave the way that the Bible says they should behave? And it's wrong for us to treat them with contempt for acting according to their nature. Lastly, on, on this topic... Show consideration for every, show every consideration for all men. The word rendered there in the Greek consideration, it, has, it means genuine concern for others. Here's the deal. We've lost the so-called culture war, not because we did not fight hard enough. We fought plenty hard. We've inflicted plenty of wounds. We lost the culture war because we took our eyes off Jesus Christ, and we did not love people in his name enough. In fact, if you've been around the church a long enough time, you know there's a guy named John MacArthur, probably the most, probably one of the most preeminent Bible scholars in the last hundred years. Many of us have the John MacArthur Study Bible. Um, he's probably the king of expository preaching. Um, John MacArthur is he is a he is a Bible beater guy. Like he 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 he's not going to mince words, okay? And uh, he he has a ministry called Grace to You, and it, it's kind of funny because he doesn't have all that much grace on people. But uh, he has this ministry called Grace to You, and uh, you would not think that this would come from John MacArthur. But here's his quote regarding this topic: When the church takes a stance that emphasizes political activism and social moralizing, it always diverts energy and resources away from evangelization. Such an antagonistic position towards the established secular culture invariably leads believers to feel hostile, not only to unsaved government leaders with whom they disagree, but antagonistic toward the unsaved resident of that culture, neighbors and fellow citizens that they ought to love and pray for and share the gospel with. To me, it is un- John MacArthur. To me, it is unthinkable that we allow ourselves to become enemies of the very people we seek to win to Christ, our potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. Put it this way. Imagine, imagine, we, imagine the church, man, we had so much influence. We got it all right. We, we got everybody elected that believed what we believed. The president, the congress, the governors, school boards, city council. Everybody believes what we believe. Every piece of legislation is based on Judeo-Christian law and, and morals and values. Zoning laws, tax codes, immigration policy, crime bills. It's exactly the way we think it ought to be. Would that usher imperfection? Would the hearts of parents then be turned towards their children? Would all marriages suddenly just be models of faithful love? Would greed and pride just be legislated now out of existence? Would human beings now be at least to master our impulses around sexuality and anger and narcissism? Would you, if we got all the laws right, would you finally become the man or woman you know you ought to be? Of course not. Because systems are important 
but they're complicated. Historian Mark Knoll said, evangelicals often fail to add value in politics because we like simplicity. Good versus evil, right versus wrong, political and economic arrangements, they're full of complexity and nuance. Well-intended legislation can lead to poor results. When we, con we condition people over and over to think that every bill, every candidate is a battle between the forces of righteousness versus the minions of darkness. We do not serve Christians. We do not serve the process well. We have to stop specializing and polarizing. Somebody wrote this, no power church organization with a political agenda ever sent out a fundraising letter noting that the upcoming bill, quote, was likely to do 40% more good than harm. It's always black and white, day and night. Righteous and sinner. See, we have to engage in a political process. We have to vote. We have to be educated. We have to be involved. But we have to do it in a way that is civil and respectful and redemptive. And we should also remember that the church is not called just to be one more political interest group. See, the human race, it's in desperate need of something else. I've seen enough elections. These guys aren't going to fix anything. Raise your hand if you've come to believe these guys are not going to fix anything. They're not, stop setting your hope there. There is only one possibility. Somebody needs to be in a position to say the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Scholars like N.T. Wright said that, that when the Christians came on the scene, they used politically loaded words. They deliberately echoed a, a parody. The, the Romans claimed that Caesar was Lord and, and that his kingdom was the good news for mankind. But the early church used these deliberately loaded words. They co-opted them because they, they were to stand above every human party and candidate and political reform. The church historically hasn't done well when it gets too closely associated with empires. The gospel words must transcend higher. They must go deeper. It turns out Caesar isn't Lord and his gospel, his, his reign is not the good news. Jesus is Lord and his gospel is good news. Jesus church, I have, I have friends that love Jesus radically and they are the most left wing and right wing people you've ever met. Here's what I know. Jesus is not left or right. He is not conservative or progressive, Republican or Democrat. Jesus did not come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. And his followers, as his followers, this election, and I know we get fueled and fired up about our passions and our longings, and they're going to change things. Can't we go back to the way things were? But this election season, the best thing you and I can do to be an influence is to be like Jesus. The first reason is it's foolish to live longing for yesterday. It makes you ungrateful. The second thing, it makes you mean, angry, and a toxic person. And here's the third. Band, you can come up as we do this one. And the third is so powerful. Please listen to me on this. The prophet Isaiah, who is writing to the people of Israel, who themselves were always looking back. Israel was always going, oh, if we could just go back. I mean, they would long for the days of slavery. If you know the story, that we would just go back to Egypt. It was so much better there. At least I had three hots and a cot. If I could just get back. The prophet Isaiah is writing to these people who are always longing to go back, believing their yesterdays were better than today's, their, their, their tomorrow's. In Isaiah chapter 43, this is what, what the Lord says through Isaiah. He says, he who made a way through the sea, he's taking them back. Remember what he did. I know you want to live back there. He says, he who made a way through the sea for you, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses of the, of the Egyptians, the army and the reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished and snuffed out like a wick. So he says, okay, remember, remember what he did for you now, remember. 
But then he says this, Isaiah 43, next verse, chapter 18. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. And here's why. Here's the third reason. This is so important for you as human beings. It's the same as Solomon. Don't live like this. You'll become ungrateful. Don't live like this. You're going to become an angry person. You're going to do, cause, you're going to do damage to the cause of Jesus. And now Isaiah gives the third reason. Isaiah 43, chapter 19, the next verse. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past because I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you perceive it? Can't you see it? I'm making new ways in the wilderness. I'm bringing streams into the wasteland. Guys, when we keep looking backwards all the time, when I keep going, oh, I just wish my kids were young. When you keep going, oh, I, I, I just wish I could go back to, to what it, the way things were five years ago or ten years ago. Oh, I wish we could just get our country to be Christian again. It never really was Christian. When you keep looking backwards in your life longingly, you're going to miss what God is doing right now. The thing he's going to do in your life your marriage, with your kids, with your job, in our country, the greatest threat that we have to the new thing that God is doing in us and for us and with us is that we have our heads so focused behind us we can't see what he's doing right now. Behold, stop looking backwards. God is doing a new thing. Solomon says, oh, excuse me, Isaiah says, I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland it turns out Don McLean was wrong. The levee isn't dry. The river's not gone. There'll be changes. The river will turn. But the life-giving water of Jesus Christ in your life and this world will never run dry. And his church, you and I, have got to be the people who point the way forward and not the people who keep wanting to go back. There are new rivers of life for you. Every time we say this, your best days are behind you, it's blasphemous. So it shows a lack of trust in God. Every time we look at our country and go, this country's best days are behind it, you're shaking your fist at God a little bit. Start, you have to start, you and I have to start by believing that he's making a new way. And what's, what's ahead for us is better. And so, Lord... Tough message, hard things. Much easier to yell at people and say, let's go back to the way the old things were. Lord, help us to love. Lord, help us to see. And Lord, help us to believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and close this song.